Bopper and Tuna Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio has written for ESPN Insider and currently serves as a senior writer for Fangraphs.com. He is the progenitor of the Zips projection system. It is Dan Zimborski. Dan Zimborski is the guest on this edition of the program. And on this edition of the program, what Dan Zimborski does is to analyze the postseason up to the present moment. And what follows, I ask Dan Zimborski which managers, not players, but managers, have produced the best performances of the postseason. Zim, uh, Zimborski does not power rank them. Although looking back on it now, perhaps I should have asked him to power rank the postseason's managerial performances. Don't win them all. Don't win them all. Also in this episode, Zimborski makes the argument for playing Matt Kemp at shortstop. It's not a great argument, turns out, but he has an argument to be made for playing not only Matt Kemp, but also Ryan Braun at shortstop. It's mostly the benefits it would have for Dan Zimborski as someone who owns and operates a projection system, but the argument exists nonetheless. Also in what follows, I ask Zim where we are in the projections calendar. Uh, Dan Zaborski, of course, as I've noted, is the progenitor of the Zips projection system. Uh, what is he currently doing to the end of producing those projections? Uh, for example, for 2019, Park Effects uh, seems to be part of it. A fuller discussion uh, on that as well. Also in the program, I ask, uh, I ask Zim quite directly. I say, Dan Zimborski, in your opinion, is Fangraph's audio worth anything? Like, objectively speaking. Here's his reply. It's a... It's a- problem I'm tackling, and I'm still not sure what the answer is. My gut tells me it has value. I'm just not sure how much. Difficult words to hear, and Zimborski would have liked more confidence. We will get to that conversation with Zimborski momentarily, but first, it is both my privilege and also my professional obligation to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist. A reasonable sum, readers of Fangraphs.com can support the great work that appears in those electronic pages, and for a slightly less reasonable sum. Not unreasonable, but slightly less reasonable Readers can acquire what is known as an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the tyranny and distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership available at Fangraphs.com. Go, go to Fangraphs.com with your internet browser to the URL Fangraphs.com. Click the appropriate item uh, in the drop-down menu. Okay, with that advert now complete, let us move on. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? The progenitor of the Zips projection system, Dan Zimborski. And when does it begin? Right now. Does she check in periodically to ensure that you haven't purchased I don't one? know. She just told me that I'm not allowed to have a blowtorch, and for some reason I'm listening to her, and I'm not really sure why. Hmm. That's interesting. When I was eight, my mom told me I could never do heroin. <laughs> <laughs> did, it, did it work, though? It did, yeah. I've done okay. zero heroin. So um, she was like, and she, she said to an eight-year-old, she said, anything else is fine. But she said, if you do heroin, you're not allowed back in my house. Oh, okay. Well, well, she left you a lot of drugs you can use. I guess a lot of anything. I'm, I'm yeah. Really you can have LSD. Do. It's you. You said it was fine, Mom. Yeah, you, yeah. And I don't. And uh, honestly, I don't think she would have blinked an eye. Really. Hey, let me ask you about baseball's postseason. Can I ask you about baseball's postseason, Dan? You can. I'm a baseball writer, as rumor has it. Yeah, that's right. Well, he. Uh, here's what I wanted to start. I wanted to start by. I suppose this could lay the foundation, uh, create some context. We are in a season that is after the regular season. Uh, therefore, postseason is absolutely the most appropriate name for it. Here's what I want to know. I think famously, right, Billy Bean, when discussing, I guess, what, his strategy of roster building, 
the Oakland A's. Uh, when asked about uh, the playoffs, he said, I think he said, my does not work in the playoffs. Isn't that right? That, 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 I, I believe that's pretty much an exact quote. There was also some chair throwing right. at some point, but yeah. the quote involved, you know, the not working. Right. So that suggests, and I, and I think rightly so, that there are different requirements placed on a team in the postseason. I'm wondering if you could, I guess, with the benefit of, um, you know, your own knowledge and uh, whatever research is latest, most recent on the subject, could you just give an idea of like what are the demands on a team, on a manager in the postseason uh, when compared uh, to the regular season? Well, I, I think one of the misnomers about like the subtext behind what Bean was saying is not necessarily that the playoffs are a complete random crapshoot. I think more the traditional aspect that playoffs are won by the clutchiest players and lost by the chokiest players, that kind of conventional wisdom about the playoffs is is kind of the, the part that's nonsense. Uh, I, I think that the, the uh, when you look at the playoffs, the challenges of roster construction are different. When you're, when you're competing in a maximum of, of 17 games... Or nineteen games, if you. Oh yeah, that's yeah. fine. Whatever. Yeah, whatever I'm, I'm I'm bad at math apparently, <laughs> uh, but don't don't tell anyone that. Uh, and anyway, if you heard this, you, you did not hear that. But there, there are different constraints when you're when you're building a team for a short sprint, and when you're talking about a 162 game season. Say you're a team that has a very deep pitching staff. That's that, that's great if you have a lot of starters because you're prepared for you know the plan Bs that that are required to plan Bs and Cs and Ds. In the playoffs, yeah, the extra uh, starters can, you know, be in the bullpen, but it's not quite as valuable as, say, being able to replace your number two starter in May if they need Tommy John surgery. So things like that. And so it becomes more of an emphasis on your frontline talent. Right. And and it should be noted, right, like uh, some starters, when transitioning to the bullpen, become uber relievers, right? Like, uh, yeah. like even someone like Kenta Maida, who is not necessarily known for being a power pitcher. I think even he got a, a, a velocity bump when he moved to the bullpen, and, and he was quite proficient, right? Yeah, it, it, it depends on the picture. Uh, Lance Lynn, for example, was not very adequate in relief uh, in a certain game that we'll probably adjust at some point. I, it depends on the picture, and you still did, have did roster Did that surprise lines. you? Did, I mean, did, did that surprise you that he didn't necessarily— uh, I, I don't know if he. I, I. I honestly, I don't remember his velocity readings from from that. That was the huge blowout game he came in to relieve Severino. Yeah, when they brought him in instead of you know one of the top starters because you know they had to you had to keep the save situations and the hold situations open for the for the good. I relievers. think you are you're speaking in jest right now, but the the point is though that that the many the many starters if if they're used in a in a relief capacity will be the best versions of themselves. Like even, I think actually our resident for September, she published a post on Jaime Garcia. And Garcia, I mean, who was, not, was never known necessarily for having power stuff, even he, I think, benefited from velocity. And also I think his, uh, for whatever reason, his, uh, his slider became much more of a weapon against both hands. So there are definitely cases, I mean, there are, you know, there are many cases where a starter benefits from that change. Did, did you have a sense of why Lancelin wouldn't have? Well, Lance Lynn, I mean, his fastball isn't quite what it used to be. I didn't see, I don't actually remember his velocity readings uh, in the second game he pitched. He, I mean, he actually was just fine in the first game, uh, mm -hmm. in game one. Uh, but he always felt like he had a very straight fastball that just 
wasn't that explosive. That wasn't that highly exciting. And really, the thing about the Yankees is they have this great deep bullpen. Uh, so when you're talking about converting, you know, starting pitchers to relief for the postseason, there's only so many ways you can deploy that. It's it's really hard to get value when you have a when you have a strong six or seven man bullpen already, and mm-hmm. you add you know a few more starters because nobody has enough high leverage innings for an 11 man bullpen in a in a game. So you you kind of get to the situation where you can't really use all your resources. But uh, so it, it it does suggest though to your the, the the point you're making almost accidentally here. <laughs> but which one which you would likely make on purpose is that if you have more relievers, more good relievers than you do high leverage innings, there's really no excuse for pitching a mediocre or you know average or worse pitcher in a high leverage inning. Oh, exactly. Uh, I think this is one of the reasons that the Yankees were able to let Adam Warren go. Uh, I talked about this back when, when, when the trade with the Mariners was made, is that he had a good season with the Yankees. He he was a strong reliever. He was a good part of the bullpen, but they just didn't have enough high leverage innings for him. Uh, so when you don't really have the high leverage innings to use those pictures, you, you don't get a lot of value from them. Right. In a mop-up situation, I mean, you can pretty much... You can pretty much use anyone, and you see teams kind of latching onto this more because we've seen an increased tendency towards position players to be that emergency mop-up guy. And I actually think that's a trend that will continue, although it's not directly applicable to the playoffs. No, well, although it became it became yeah. relevant uh, in the series <laughs> between the Red Sox and the Yankees. I, yeah, that is, I, I'm you know I'm sure I mean, obviously the, there have been plenty of teams that have gone on to win a World Series that lost a game along the way, right? Yeah, it, it has happened on at least four occasions. Right, but if you resort to having a position player, typically I, I will say up to the present, if a position player has thrown has pitched in a game for you, at least one at least one game went horribly <laughs> wrong. Yeah. That's fair, I think, right? Yeah. But it, actually, to this point, it does make sense, right? Like, if you have a 0% chance of winning a game, you know, or you can round down to zero, then it doesn't. It really doesn't matter who's on the mound and in terms of winning the game, right? And so you have at least two options. Maybe you could think of others. One is throw anyone out there, like literally any human, as long as you can get to the end of the game. Or two, like especially in like in a circumstance with expanded rosters, at least in that, like you can get you could throw a guy who might get a couple innings for development purposes. Or or thirdly, maybe it's like I don't know how well you or how much you followed the season of Hector Neris. I, I may be saying his name incorrectly. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Uh, the Phillies Hector Neris, who like in all of the defense independent ways was dominant, but just allowed a lot of runs also somehow. So you could that's like a situation where you could do someone like him to be like, are you really broken or? Have you just been a horrible victim of circumstance? Yeah, there, there's that there's that FIP ERA kind of clash sometimes where it's it's easy to say that a player should be doing better than they are, but mm-hmm. at some point they actually have to do better than they are. That was kind of the problem with the Dodgers for a lot of the season, uh, because like pretty much everyone else, I projected the Dodgers to do very well this season, and they weren't. And you know, you keep saying they're good, they're, they'll be fine, but at some point they have to actually win those games. At some point they have to make those outs. Uh, but yeah. But going, yeah, but going back to the picture is like when you're 10 runs behind, it's almost pointless to even use a picture. I mean, you don't want a situation where you injure an, a hitter like Jose Canseco throwing out his arm pitching. But I mean, Austin Roman has to throw a lot anyway. And I mean, you can throw pretty much anyone onto a mound and they will eventually get out of the inning. Uh, you, you think back to uh, the Ty Cobb suspension where uh, 1912 when when that uh, wasn't I would say what that was not. My first inclination was to think back to, to Ty Cobb in 1912, but 
Think back Continue. to the days of yore. Well, they essentially put together a team of just random people in the area, and the game did end. Uh, Alan Travers was uh, the, the the picture for the Tigers. He was just thrown in. He was in like the local uh, Jesuit mission or whatever. Uh, just a twenty year old guy they just threw in, and he did get out of the games. He got out. He he had a strikeout, I think. They lost, but the game ended. And, and a strikeout in nineteen. It should be said a strikeout in nineteen twelve is like th- at least three strikeouts now, right? Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. I mean, they're, they they actually had games where people didn't strike out. Then now it's it's kind of uh, now I'm actually looking it up. His FIP was only five point two three. He had some bad defense luck from the other pickup players on the team, so he could go to his grave knowing he was underrated. He's, I'm I'm guessing he's in his grave if you yeah. play the baseball game. Yeah, he was born in eighteen ninety two. Yeah, so he's he's. He's, he's dead. He's uh, yeah. what uh, shuffled off this mortal coil. Is that yeah, that that's that's a. I don't know if you need a euphemism for someone born in 1892 at this point. <laughs> it's like, I mean, he's, it's it's, he's it's super a, dead. Yeah, it's a tragedy, you know, when someone dies at 30, 40, or 50. Uh, yeah. but no one really, you know, worries too much about you know the dead 126 year olds. What do you think is the uh, here's a here's a, a morbid, but also I would argue a, a somewhat useful question is when when does a death transform from tragic to just fine <laughs> i think it, i think there's a probability based i think okay. right. i think kind of like if you're less likely to die in a situation than jason tyner is to hit a home run mm-hmm. if you're less likely to die then that's a that's that's a huge tragedy i think so when do, when do, so when do, so like for for a uh, I mean we're both uh, we're both white men we can't escape it so let's not try when is uh, what is the um, here's the average or the median age of decease deceasement for uh, for a white man these days do you know well well I think it's like seventy seven seventy eight okay. but if you make it to about our age it's the average death is like eighty oh, okay. uh, because. We're not young men anymore, so we're less likely to kill each other doing stupid things. Oh yeah, right. And you know things like that. So I mean, we're 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 at the halfway point. Yeah, but but like, so, so if someone dies, if someone dies at forty five, that's I think that's dark. That's that's unfortunate, right? Yeah, I, I I think it also you know depends like on how well they take care of themselves. Yeah. Like I'm I'm overweight, so I think me dying at fifty isn't as tragic as someone like who's a marathon <laughs> runner at fifty. I mean, I'd prefer not to die at fifty. No, yeah, but, yeah, and, yeah, but probability-wise, you have to you have to acknowledge that that's yeah. a probability. I mean, I, I certainly don't want you to die before you before you finished all of your posts for the week. Yeah, I have to finish yeah. those first. Yeah, yeah. Then I'm in the clear. We have a strict no death policy. If you have, if you have, you still have copy to submit. Yeah, I you you kind of want to die at certain times of the year, like after the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of at the. St- like after the first week of spring training, when nothing really is going on except cuts, that's August another... is actually fine too. The month of August is yeah. not so bad. That's a, this is a lull in the season there. Yeah, after yeah after the trade deadline, those right. are the times. I mean, it would really like I I can't die in late March because I have final projections to get out. No, that's yeah, that would be really inconvenient yeah. for all of us. Now let me ask you. All right, so so let's return to this question of of uh, the differences between the regular and post-seasons. You uh, invoked this sort of pitcher usage immediately. Would you say, would it be fair to say, do you think that, that how a manager orchestrates his pitching staff, that, that marks the, the largest departure in the postseason from uh, from the regular season? It's something that's hard to like, you know, evaluate statistically, but I do think that you do want to see managers be more flexible with, with picture usage or even lineup usage than they are in the postseason because you're, you're, it's, 
you're not saving guys anymore. It's a it's a sprint. It's not a marathon. And I think that some managers are adjusting well. I think you you, you see pictures go to high leverage relievers a lot quicker, and that's how it should be. Uh, you can't manage a whole season, you know, bringing in your your top pitchers, top relievers in the fourth or fifth inning. You, you know, you'll you'll burn them out before the end of May, and then you'll you'll stink and you'll play like the Orioles, maybe. Uh, no, that's that's too mean. I don't want to go that far. No, that's too. So, were you surprised then uh, by, I guess, Aaron Boone's performance? Performance to some degree, his managerial performance in the last two games of the. Um, the I was. I, he he got a lot of heat for the Severino thing, but I can't really blame that kind of heat. Sometimes when when a manager's piled on uh, piled on, I'm like, oh, that's fine. It was reasonable. But in, in this case, one of the things the Yankees have is that great bullpen. And this was a this was a point. It was three nothing at that point. Severino had loaded the bases. When you're at that point, I mean, it takes it's so little. It's just the tiniest thing can just push you out of the game for good. So why would you go to Lance Lynn of all people? I mean, even if you think he would do well in relief in relief, he's also kind of unproven right now. I mean, he he has not had he did not have a good season. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he broke into the majors as a reliever, but that was a long time ago. I, I don't think he's the guy you want in that situation. So, now, so your actual, if you were to, um, now listen, we're all fallible. We're, we're largely defined by our weaknesses, right? I, I think we can agree on that. Well, I'm going to pretend we're agreeing on that. <laughs> I, I, I will agree on that. Okay. So surely by noting, by noticing the moat, uh, the note in, in the moat in Aaron Boone's eye, uh, we recognize that there are logs in our own eyes. Yeah. However, would you say that, that for you, the, the strangest sort of move about that was at the game three against the Red Sox was not so much sticking with Luis Severino, but in inserting Lance Lynn in uh, in his place instead of, for example, Chad Green, who threw, I think, almost 30 pitches later in the game in, in what was basically, a, you know, I mean, innings that could have really been pitched by a Romine, for example. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a problem. And, you know, Chad Green, when he came in, he didn't really pitch well either he he walked a couple batters but you know if you go to chad green and chad green stinks at least he went with a really really good arm i i don't have mm-hmm. any problems with a team losing when they take their best shot at something mm-hmm. i i think about uh the braves and the game four loss to the dodgers there was an argument that people could made that you know that you don't bring faulty back uh, on a short rest and you say no give full his his whole rest, uh, even though he th- only threw 50 pitches, he's a young pitcher. He's never explicitly thrown on three games of rest as a starter before. But you, you look at that team and you say, well, you know what? What gives us the best chance to stay alive? And it's hard to say that that wasn't the best thing to do. I mean, some people are like, well, go to go to Julio Tehran. But mm-hmm. Julio Tehran is not the pitcher he used to be. He's just decidedly mediocre now. And it's hard to look at yourself if you lose that game and that you didn't go to your best option. Fulte was their best option. It didn't really work out. He wasn't that sharp. And of course, Kevin Gosman was unavailable because he had just gone in relief, so he couldn't have started. And, you know, they they lost the game. They lost the game, you know, fairly convincingly 6-2. to two. Uh, You know, they were they lost it in the late innings. But I, I don't think that you can feel bad if you've lost 
putting your best players. You put your hand in poker. You put you want your money behind your best hand. A lot of times you're going to lose. That's just how poker is. Right. Uh, it's the same way. Lose with your with your best hand. And the Braves did that. So you know they can look back at, at Game Four. And say, hey, you know, we, we gave it the best. It didn't work out, but you know, we don't need to second guess that. Right. There's nothing we. There's nothing necessarily that we would have done. The, the choice, the decisions we made at the time were were all defensible, and therefore, you know, that's all. That's the best we can do. I want to ask you about this, uh, the Cleveland Houston series. Obviously, Houston's talented, right? I think that they produced the best record according to best uh, to base runs. I, I could be mistaken, but I think that they were actually a little bit better. Uh, than the Red Sox by that particular measure. They obviously won the World Series last year. They are good in a number of ways. Uh, certainly the addition of Justin Verlander last year, the addition of Garrett Cole this year, were significant to helping the team. Uh, the point is they're good. However, Cleveland had like two legitimate MVP candidates in Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez. I mean, probably not quite as legitimate as, as Mookie Betts, but two very talented players. And, and one of the best... Starting rotations in how, you know X years. I don't know how far back one one would need to go, but a, a team that had four quality starters and then added Mike Clevenger, who was also uh, by his own right pretty excellent this year. But the Houston Astros, they just walked over Cleveland. No, the Astros are a scary team from top to bottom. What I admire about the Astros is is they, I, I look at I look at the Pittsburgh Pirates. And they did do a good job. The the Huntington Cunley uh, regime did a much better job than than previous teams had done. You know, Littlefield and Bonifay and all that group. Mm-hmm. And they did an excellent job rebuilding. But one thing Pittsburgh never did is they never really pushed over the top. They never had that that time where they threw caution to the wind and tried to put the best team on the field. They never had their Verlander trade. They never had a Garrett Cole trade while the while the team was at its peak. And the, mm-hmm. and Houston does that. They push forward and they trust the players they developed. There was no hemming and hawing about giving Alex Bregman a, a job very quickly when he hit the majors. They didn't go nuts when he had that slump to start the season in 2017, uh, unless I'm misremembering the timeline. They trusted, they trust their best players and they trust their best young talent to get them where they need to go. And I think that's a, that's a pretty... George Springer is another case of that. He also started in the majors very poorly with a, with a long in 2015 with a long just really terrible April. Mm-hmm. But again, they trusted that in the end that the talent would win out. And sometimes it wins in the playoffs, and sometimes it doesn't. They've been fortunate that it worked very well in the playoffs. But it's a very deep team. I mean, it's not a perfect team, but it's a deep team. And I I think they tend to view their weaknesses. Uh, realistically, they don't think that every player on the team is great because they won the World Series. Uh, there's no Alcides Escobar of the Astros, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Where where uh, even the sort of worst performing player benefits in the eyes of the front office from a sort of sheen uh, because they are a championship type player by virtue of having been on a championship team. Uh, and they're going to get, and then they and they've, and they've gotten some well-deserved heat. Uh, the way they they picked up Robert Asuna, I'm I'm not really sure what the answer is to a situation like that. It's it's kind of out of my wheelhouse of expertise. Mm-hmm. How do you separate, you know, the winning at all costs towards the people you bring aboard? And again, I don't know the answer to that because mm-hmm. 
I, I think, you know, not taking it into consideration at all is probably wrong. But do you, do you take into consideration the issues for the entire career of a player? And I'm Ooh, always happy yeah. that I don't have to approach that question too often. I mean, I think my I mean, my guess is what clubs probably count on. Right. Is that winning has the ability to create a kind of amnesia mm-hmm. and f- forgiveness for possible slights and so that even if a team is aware that it's you know alienating certain fans yeah that they will probably benefit from an uh, an even greater allegiance from others if uh, if that move uh, leads to a, you know a World Series or a deep postseason run. I, I, and, I mean, and of course they could. We we haven't had uh, a repeat World Series winner in you know a while now. I'm trying to. It was the uh, I think probably the Yankees, right? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, maybe nine 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 two thousand. Does that sound right? Could be something like that. I'm trying to think. Okay, there I see. I'm going back in my head. I'm thinking. Eh? No, it, it would have been the ninety nine two thousand teams. I think. The the when they had the three years after the Marlins. Did I not say that? What did I say? Yeah, I, no, you said that. I think okay. I think that is it, though. I'm okay. I'm buttressing your point, not refuting it. <laughs> I appreciate you buttressing me. So I know it's not the Giants because they only won theirs in even years. Right. Uh, so let's see. So we've had we've at least made a superficial mention of uh, the Astros, right? Check. Yeah, Astros. Check. Uh, uh, the, we talked well, Red you, Sox and Yankees. We yeah, we talked about yeah. That's right. Superficial mention of the Red Sox. Now we had to talk about the uh, the NL teams because we're displaying our East Coast bias. That's true. Although I'd argue that Houston is not on the East Coast. Yeah, but I was not in the Pacific Coast, so. So uh, <laughs> we did mention the Dodgers. The Dodgers briefly. They, they oh yeah, because we, we mentioned we mentioned Atlanta as well. Uh, we did we did it mostly in the context of discussing. Atlanta, which was the East Coast. Yeah, I actually forgot our conversation where I talked about, you know, Fulton Avich and and winning behind him in the Dodger game. So actually, I I lied. I'm a liar. So uh, uh, would you care to do you you have any particular comments about those Dodgers, however? The Dodgers, I mean, they're a pretty straightforward team. They have a lot of talent, a lot of money. They throw a lot together. One thing I do love is how flexible the team is from a position standpoint, where they've played, you know, half the team at at all over the the diamond. Obviously, you're not going to play Matt Kemp anywhere, but but a corner outfield spot. But you have you have Bellinger uh, playing center field. You have Chris Taylor all over the place. Yeah, I like that kind of thing. So, oh yeah, well, I mean, I think it's great too, and it was it was one of the the, the qualities that marked the the World Series club, the, the, the Cubs, the Cubs World Series. Yeah, team, the Cubs right? were very flexible too, and also they had some of their best players doing that, which to me is is remarkable. I guess it's a question of buy-in, and a question obviously the talent needs to be there, as you note. Moving Matt Kemp all around the diamond is going to produce diminishing returns. It would be it, it, from a uh, from the standpoint of an of an analyst, it would be fascinating to see how Matt Kemp would adjust to playing shortstop. If if the Dodgers were say like you know sixty and ninety going in the last few weeks of the season, mm-hmm. I I I I totally would like to see Matt Kemp to do the shortstop because you say, hey, how bad would a terrible corner outfielder be in at shortstop or second base? I mean. I, I kind of want to see that. For it would be science. helpful. What you're yeah. seeing is it would be helpful. So you could actually, you could begin to, uh, you could acquire more data uh, so you can look yeah. at the uh, the performances of a player going between the two positions. What, yeah. One thing that has surprised me, and perhaps it perhaps it shouldn't, based off of the scattering reports of this player as a uh, as a minor leaguer, but su- uh, superficially at least, Cody Bellinger's 
capacity to play center field with, at least according to numbers, what appears to be average or better run prevention is, I, I think that's quite surprising, especially because he's not, he does not grade out um, by any measure to be a superlative first baseman. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's a pretty, he's an above average first baseman, um, according both to defensive run saves and uh, ultimate zone rating. However, uh, he's actually like he basically gets the same grades, if not better, as a center fielder, which I suppose points to two things. One, uh, that those positions have different demands, right? Mm-hmm. But the other is that Cody Bellinger is probably a pretty special athlete. Uh, yeah, I mean, and he he's not like a sloth on the field or anything. I mean, he stole like 15 bases this year. It's interesting because defense in baseball, when you evaluate a hitter, you're essentially evaluating the player as a hitter. But a lot of times, the positions a player plays and doesn't play isn't because they failed at the position. It's just because we believe that they can't play that position. Someone sees a first baseman and they don't even try him at center fielder in spring training or, or, or in minor leagues. They don't, they don't generally put their first baseman in center field simply because of the belief that they wouldn't be able to play center. Now it's probably accurate in most cases, but when you're talking about a player who's still young, who's not a slow player, I mean, that speed's very important out there in, in center field. It, it's the kind of thing that you like to see. Uh, I used to I used to argue that the Brewers should play Ryan Braun at shortstop in spring training, not because he's likely to be good, but just to find things out. Uh, because one of the problems with projections and even that teams have just putting together a roster is baseball, you're only judging based on the attributes you see of a player and what's come before. There's not a lot of experimental data. There's no, let's let's simulate Ryan Braun as a shortstop for a million years or something. You can't do that with actual people. It doesn't... I think I he think. would be... I, I don't think he would be good for a million years. I think even after, like, 10, uh, he would slow down. <laughs> yeah. It, and, and the Players Association would be against it, too. So that, that would be a non The million-year contract, do you mean? Well, the million-year contract... Where you know where where you slave them for an eternity and they never die and all they do is play a position to entertain you, right? It's, yeah, well, it, was, it would keep him away from his family. I'd have to think. Yeah, and I mean, he might not want to do that for eternity. That sounds right. more like a hell. So now you you're somebody who has to uh, contend with issues. I mean, obviously, it, it's a it's at the forefront of a lot of what uh, the post at Fangraphs is this question of player value and team value too, to a certain degree. You're someone who has to also consider it from the point of, um, from the point of view of someone who's attempted to construct projections. I'm curious if from what you have looked at, if there is any, if there is any added value and and if so, how much from a player who can play multiple positions? Uh, That that's one of those things that, that I'm still tackling uh, because as we, as we talk about the lack of experimental data, there's a lot of things that we just don't know. Like, we don't really even, we don't know what the long-term consequences, if any, are there going to be from the the Rays, you know, you know, starting a relief picture for the first inning and throwing in the starter, the, those games. I, well, we I, know a short-term consequence is that other teams are going to do it. Yeah, that's a short-term consequence. Mm-hmm. And it, it probably makes us wonder about war and how we should be treating 
those innings is because there's there's like even a there's arguably a problem with war because we're still comparing say a, a picture like uh, Ryan Stanek since right. he has 29 or 30 starts or something that we're still comparing him to replacement level for a, a starting picture instead of a reliever which he really is and and so on but we also don't know is that is that better for a pitcher's arm is it does it have value long term? How are pictures going to feel about it when they hit free agency and and they've been used in that way? Uh, so there's a lot we don't know. And it's the same with projections is projecting is a long process of putting in certain things and then seeing what happened in baseball history. Because as I said, everything we know about baseball is what's happened in baseball. And we still don't have, you know, teams. I mean, there are always some flexible players. But we haven't really seen an extended period where stars are this flexible in modern baseball. In early baseball, there was actually quite a bit of flexibility. Uh, when you look at like uh, Honus Wagner, people know he's a Hall of Fame shortstop, but some of them might not know that he played a lot of all four infield positions. He played in the outfield, but at some point positions got a lot more rigid uh, and the players like Tony Phillips uh, we're we're still kind of a minority, but if we have a trend where where a lot of these star players are are playing multiple positions, where where if Bellinger his whole career is shifted between first base and center field or a corner outfield spot as the team needs, I'm I'm still tackling how to deal with that question because you want to deal with things in an in, in intellectually honest manner and not have a whole bunch of kludges and guesses built in, but you know you also want an answer. So that's it's a, it's a problem i'm tackling and i'm still not sure what the answer is my gut tells me it has value mm -hmm. i'm just not sure how much right yeah well it certainly has value i guess if nothing else uh it provides some options for a manager right mm -hmm. it, and so i guess it creates let's see for a team it creates a different kind of replacement level doesn't it it, it can because all of a sudden you're not stuck replacing a shortstop with a shortstop necessarily. You might be more willing than a team to use a third baseman there. Uh, it's also interesting because when you talk about managers, it creates an additional tactical element uh, to to the game that, that isn't actually there. Uh, baseball, as it is, isn't as isn't a huge tactical game. It's in a lot of ways an individual game played in a team concept. Mm -hmm. But a lot most of the so-called plays in baseball tend to be fairly by rote, you know, turning a double play, uh, throwing out a runner at the plate. Uh, there's not a lot of decision-making that really has that much of an impact. Uh, but from a, a roster standpoint, all of a sudden you have flexible players that can play multiple positions, and all of a sudden you have another way to, to possibly separate good managers from poor ones. Uh, the one team that will uh, participate in the championship series that we have not addressed is the Milwaukee Brewers. Brewers! Uh, uh, right, and uh, I mean, on the topic of, of considering a managerial flexibility or comfort with using the bullpen early and often, we just, you know, because we began the conversation discussing Aaron Boone to some effect, uh, Craig Council has uh, assuredly exhibited uh, some comfort going to his bullpen, I mean, not just early, but at the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, how often do you see a team starting the postseason with a bullpen game? That's it's <laughs> it's not, and and it it shows an understanding of what got them there. Most of the Brewers' best arms are relief pitchers. I mean, this was a team that very realistically had had, had Julius Chassin as the ace pitcher, mm -hmm. and when you look from a starting pitcher standpoint, 
you match up the Brewers against any other postseason team, and they have an inferior starting pitching matchup pretty much down the board. I mean, they have adequate starting pitching. I mean, they got a lot of good performances, but there's no one who's an ace who you just throw out there. There's no Chris Sale. There's no Corey Kluber, although that didn't work. There, uh, But so I, I thought it was a, a gutsy move to do. It allowed them to not have to worry about using Shasin, uh in, 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 in the wild card game. Uh, so I, I like the Brewers doing that. It's It's a fun team to watch. It's a fun team to root for. Uh, well, I, yeah, I, yeah. And, and also in terms of uh, um, flexibility, and they um, they featured what I think it was game one of that series against the Rockies. They threw uh, I don't know if he's technically a rookie still or um, but still uh, rather inexperienced right-hander Brendan Woodruff, followed by actual definite rookie Corbin Burns. Two players who I think in their uh, this season combined for fewer than 100 innings um, were responsible for pitching by definition. The uh, well, I guess half the game. It was a 10-inning game, which shows remarkable, again, remarkable flexibility and willingness to, to utilize the team's strength, which was, uh, which is a collection of arms, which over, you know, one, two, or three innings could be quite effective. Yeah, and I also like that they're willing to get relievers out of those because one of the benefits when you're using relievers in such an aggressive manner is that you no longer have the luxury of taking those easy fill-in-the-blank Mad Libs roles for them, like, say, Brad Ausmus did a few years ago with the Tigers, saying, you know, we couldn't bring him in because he's our seventh-inning guy and not our eighth-inning guy. When you're having to use relievers so aggressively, you, you can't afford to have that kind of rigid usage. And I think that kind of frees up things a little. They can start thinking more. When you're not thinking this guy has to pitch in the eighth, you're, you're thinking more about the game state. You're thinking more of the leverage index of a particular at-bat. You're thinking of what pinch hitters they might go up against. Uh, and I think I think it's, one, it's it's effective. It shows when a manager knows what they're doing. So you can, a good manager would probably do that better than, say, Mike Matheny would. But it also, and also just, it shows just some creativity. Mm-hmm. And baseball doesn't always have as much creativity as it could. No, I was, um, it reminds me today, I came across a post by former colleague, Travis Sacha, currently at 538, and um, the title was something to the effect of that uh, innovation, innovation, innov- <laughs> wait, no, <laughs> innovation should, uh, should not be a result of necessity, or something like that, pointing to the fact that, now, of course, there's an example from last year, right, where Joe Girardi expressed some reluctance to use his bullpen exclusively in a wild card game, and then was forced to I forget. Did Luis Severino last year? Was it just you got only got through a third of an inning, uh, um, or something like remember. that? I, 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 I'm okay, pretty sure he did not get out of the first inning. So he was he was forced to utilize a bullpen, his bullpen exclusively anyway. But yeah, it was the wild card game. Okay, right. right. So um, right. So the the point is that that ideally you don't uh, you don't move to innovation as a uh, as a last resort but perhaps uh, staying ahead of it and i think the teams that have been willing to experiment have by and large been rewarded for it haven't they yeah even the royals aggressively went after relief pictures and even though you can you can play about a lot of things the team did i mean it was at least creative it it wasn't necessarily the traditional playoff role uh but you you see the teams in the playoffs are largely very creative. The Brewers are creative. The Indians are. The Astros, the Dodgers. The Rockies, not so much. Although, I guess there's a certain amount of creativity in thinking that Ian Desmond should be a starting first baseman. But, you know, by and large, the teams in the playoffs tended to be very creative about things. 
Hey, uh, Zim, I'm going to uh, pause right here uh, briefly. Okay. I'll just, I'll just sing to myself. So you are the Christ, you're the great Jesus Christ. Do, 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 prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. That's all you need to do, and I'll know it's all true. Boom, boom, boom. Come on, king of the Jews. Jesus, just won't believe the hit you've made round here. You are all we talk about. The wonder of the year. Oh, you're mad. Okay. Oh, what a... Okay, all right. Zimborski. Yep. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I sang to myself as, as hold music. No, well, yeah, we're going to go ahead and cut that out. Yeah, you uh, should. Likely have already. Hey, what a great conversation so far. <laughs> Let me ask you about something else, though, Dan Zimborski. You can ask me about something else. Sure. You are, you are well, I don't think you're famous for anything. That would be going too far, wouldn't it? But uh, in this uh, community. Uh, Mild notoriety. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. In this, in this community, though, you're probably most well-known for your for the, uh, projections. the projections the projections you produce the, yeah the zip the, stuff yeah the zips projections right they're a lot they're a lot of fun um and they're they're great uh, in my opinion for uh organizing my thoughts uh, and uh i think i mean probably one thing they're designed to do right is to uh, give some sense to provide a snapshot of true talent would you ever say something like that i would say i mean it's a it's a kind of an abstract concept that always changes but it, it does do a decent job at capturing a slice of time <laughs> Very, uh, very good. Here's what, here's where I want to start on this particular line of inquiry is where are we on the projection calendar, essentially? Well, I mean, well, we're at the point where I'm still, you know, calculating all the park effects. I do include postseason performance in the projections, so I don't usually have finals until we are 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 are, are done the playoffs, and then I finalize all the park factors. I've I've got all the minor league translations ready to go, since none of those are going to change. So so I'm I, I'm at the point where I'm already you know I'm I'm well on my way to thinking about 2019 because the baseball season never really ends, uh, especially for someone who churns out a lot of projections. And I mean the essential thing about projections as I do them is because they're a lot of fun and they give us things that they they provide things to talk about because they. Even if they're, you know, computer generated numbers, they also have an opinion on a player. And anytime you have an opinion on a player, it's fun to either agree with it or disagree with it and talk about the consequences and looking at the offseason. So it's 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 kind of a, a year round game. Well, yeah. And, and again, I think it uh, I think it it goes some way towards creating a picture of the league, as you say, at a, a slice of time at, at any particular moment you can get a sense of, of where players are and where teams are collectively. It can provide a, a nice sketch uh, as far as that's concerned. Now, you mentioned, let's see, you mentioned a couple of things. One, uh, park effects. Now, I, I don't know where we are in terms of how proprietary your calculations are, but what is, for, for you, what does that entail, updating your park effects? And I guess well, uh, say as little or much as, uh, as you deem necessary. Well, my park effects are pretty straightforward because the thing about park effects is, in a sen- in essence, they're a blunt instrument. So there's not a lot of really drastically different ways you can do park effects. I mean, I do include the postseason games and I adjust based on the mix of teams. But I mean, it, it, it's it's pretty straightforward, and they, there tends to be a general agreement with the FanGraphs park effects because you know we're working for the same data. It's it's always those minor league park effects that that do more work since I actually go through all the. Uh, the game logs to generate all that information since nobody releases them that off. That's a, that kind hey, of... that sounds tedious. 
It, it is, but I'm very good at harvesting data. As I, I, I'm like, if the Grim Reaper reaps souls, mm-hmm. I reap the souls of the baseball season into data. Yeah, you know what? Usually, when uh, we're just going through with harvesting and reaping, those are both uh, agricultural terms. Well, our country you used was a metaphor origin- to des- to describe another metaphor. Yeah, that, that, nothing wrong with that. It's it's just metaphors on metaphors. It's like you know, turtles all the way down. Let me ask you this: with regard to Let's see. That was Park Effects. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask. I was going to try and weasel some uh, minor league information out of you. I assume that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is at the top of things. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, you, you saw the projection for him. That's right. And your if that translation and, yeah. wasn't good, that projection would not have been what it was. Yeah. It, Vlad's interesting because you look at his projection and you just want to say that there's no way. That's that's too high. But Yeah. Can you give, can you give us an idea of what we were seeing? There it doesn't have to be... Uh, uh, it doesn't well, have if, to be precise. If yeah. you're reading my series of mm-hmm. LG for 18, mm-hmm. I mean, Zips already projects Guerrero, age 20 for next season, as an 850 OPS hitter. Uh, his translation for this year was like an 870-something OPS. I don't have it in front of me, but that is an insane translation mm-hmm. because very few players translate that well to the majors. It's not like it used to be really 20 or 30 years ago where you had a lot of what Bill James called the Ken Phelps All-Stars because two things happened. Japan became a a good alternate oh, uh, right. a good alternate place for a lot of these guys. So guys like Greg LaRocca were able to instead of being AAA hitters that never got a chance, they got to go over kind of to the quadruple A league. And I hate to say it like that to demean it, but it is lower level than MLB and we have to admit that. Right. Uh so you have that and you have teams now just being more savvy. You don't really see players who perform excellently in the minors year in year out just be labeled a minor league slugger and not make the majors. Like Nelson Cruz Yeah, it took him extra time to make the majors, but he did make the majors. And there were always guys like that who never really did. But I I think teams are more willing to look at that now. I think Vladimir Guerrero uh, Jr., as you're suggesting, is probably not going to slip through the cracks. Oh, no, he's not. I'm just saying that, generally (laughs) speaking, that translations like that are rare. Uh, we don't you don't see like a lot of veteran minor league sluggers with with those kind of translations because they've already been called up to Japan or or the majors. Now Vlad Jr. is is projected to record 503 at bats by Zips, and I know that the... that's all. Yeah, that's at bats are always kind of a mystery. Uh, when I run like season projections, then I actually you know do go in and do my own little depth charts and everything. But generally speaking, for the projections themselves, I like to be agnostic on that Mm -hmm. because I think that a projection system in a large way should be agnostic about things like that. I I want a projection system saying how good Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is or how good he isn't. I don't really want a projection system to analyze how the Blue Jays will use him and how they will transition him to the majors. I think that's kind of not a great use of a projection system. It doesn't read the paper, and even if it did, I'm not the one who's smart enough to program that kind of thing. Yeah, and also I can, I can read better than than Zips can. So I mean, I have I have I have you know a lot of tricks where I can turn you know scouting information into data, but I I, I do want Zips to kind of be self-contained and not include my opinion as much as I can get away with. Right. Yeah. Well, I think we get enough of your opinion <laughs> the rest of the time anyway. Far uh, too and, much. And it, I would also would argue, yeah, I'd also argue that doing what you know you can do well uh, is yeah. is much preferable to trying to do everything less well. Yeah, I, I agree. I do focus on what the projection system does well. I write 
topics I write well. I write well about teams. I write well when I have the opportunity to be snark or critical. You wouldn't really get me to write a human interest story. You really, really shouldn't get me to write a human interest story. But, you know, I, I, I think. I think when you focus on the things that you do, then you provide the best insights. Uh, when you're kind of shoehorned to do something you're not ideal at, then your insights aren't as valuable. Right. I regret to inform you, Zimborski, uh, that I have to go uh, procure my son from a uh, some sort of babysitter. Okay, I thought you were going to say like like a kidnapper or something like procure. Well, uh, t- t- TBD on that one because uh, I might have I don't know if I mentioned it at the beginning of the program or not. I'm actually in Quebec City. We had to utilize I think it's care.com uh, in order to secure these services. Um, so it's possible that uh, it might, might this might be a kidnapper. Uh, with well, you you, you could say that daycare is just kidnappers who don't have high demands. Right, yeah, hers hers happens to be eighteen Canadian an hour, and if we didn't pay it, who knows? Maybe she would attempt to uh, to yeah. keep the child. But I, uh, we're I mean, trying to keep things civil here. Yeah, kind of like when 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 you don't pay your car payment, you can get a mechanics lien. I'm pretty sure you can get a kids lien, mm-hmm. and if you don't pay the daycare, then all your kids' earnings for life they own. Right, I'm going to trust you on this one, and I'm yeah. also going to say thank you, Dan Zimborski. Always fun, Carson. You have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Uh, <laughs> as I said, uh, thank you to Zipborski. You said it was a pleasure. Here's what I'll say now. That has been progenitor of the Zips Projection System and uh, senior writer of Fangraphs.com, Dan Zaborski. I'm Carson Zestuli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio.